Hello, and welcome to the Lancet Digital Health Podcast. I'm Diana Samuel, a senior editor of the journal. Today, we're going to be talking about how to improve the reporting of artificial intelligence-based clinical research studies and the representativeness of health datasets. And joining me for this discussion is Dr. Xiao Lu. Xiao is a clinician scientist in AI and digital health research at University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust. Her expertise lie at the intersection of AI, digital health technologies, health policy, and regulation, with particular interest in the safety, efficacy, and equity of AI and digital health technologies. She has a number of advisory roles, such as with the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. She also co-led the development of extensions to the Spirit and Consort Reporting Guidelines for clinical trials involving AI interventions. And these guidelines have subsequently been adopted by the Lancet journals. So welcome, Shell. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Dan. It's great to be here. So to kick off, it would be great for myself and our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So could you tell us a bit about your background and what got you into your current role and line of research? Yeah, sure. So um, so I'm a clinician by background. Um, I'm a clinical academic at University Hospitals Birmingham um, with the AI and Digital Health Research Team. And um, as a team, our work focuses on the intersection between clinical medicine, clinical AI, and uh, regulation and health policy. So for me, I got into AI research at some point during my PhD uh, when it probably all started with a systematic review that I did where we were looking at the accuracy of deep learning algorithms for medical imaging. Um, and that was really eye-opening at the time for me because we looked at a huge number of studies at the time that were being published in very high-impact journals showing really impressive results. But what we found was actually this huge mismatch between the amount of hype that AI was getting at the time and the quality of evidence that actually came through in our systematic review. We found lots of issues with the way that they were reported and the study design aspects. And so since then, I've worked on reporting standards to try and improve the conduct and the reporting of clinical studies that are evaluating AI. I've worked on things like auditing frameworks um, on how we ensure safety of AI once it's in deployment. And a lot of that work has brought me into work with um, policymakers. So like you mentioned, Diana, institutions like um, NICE, like medical device regulators, like the MHRA. And that's been very um, exciting as well to see the impact of our research um, affect health policy. That's great. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. So it's really sort of grounded in, in improving the, the evidence base for AI and medicine. Um, so, I, yeah, I mentioned in the introduction your involvement in developing AI extension for Spirit and Consort. You're also part of the team behind Decide AI, which is a reporting guideline for early stage clinical studies of AI-based decision support systems. Um, could you give us some insight into how the idea for these extensions and guidelines came about and elaborate on why it's important to have reporting guidelines that are specific to AI. Yeah, of course. So after we did that systematic review and sort of uh, got a new understanding of how much there was this big methodological gap for clinical evidence in AI, we really wanted to be uh, contributing to 
making that situation better. We wanted to improve the quality of evidence coming through to AI because we wanted to see it succeed. So um, one of the projects that you mentioned just there was Spirit AI and Consult AI. So these are um, extensions to reporting guidelines that are already very widely used within clinical research. So Consult statement for randomized trials has been around for many, many years. And these are um, guidelines that tell um, authors, investigators, how they should write up their study. It doesn't tell them how to do their study. It just tells them this is the information you need to provide so that other people can appraise and appraise your evidence and judge whether there's bias and things like that. And so we set this up for um, randomized trials and trial protocols, um, console and spirit, respectively, uh, to add on um, AI-specific considerations on those guidelines that already exist. And I think there's been a couple of benefits to us doing that. I think one, it has really stressed the importance of good, what the good clinical evaluation looks like and, and encouraged others to pursue things like prospective trials. And I think the second thing is that it made sure that AI-specific considerations wouldn't sort of slip through the net, as it were, um, when authors are writing up their AI studies. And since Spirit AI and Consult AI, there have been a number of other frameworks that are geared towards um, specific study designs. So Decide AI is the one for early, small-scale feasibility studies and the big human factors component within that. And then actually there are two other reporting guidelines. Um, one is Stard AI for diagnostic accuracy studies, um, where the test is a AI model. And there's also tripod AI, which is for prediction and prognostic models. And so those are the reporting guidelines. And one of the other things that we've also worked on re more recently is something called the medical algorithmic audit. So most of those reporting guidelines are geared towards their study evaluation phase, but the medical algorithmic audit was our way of contributing to what good practice would look like once an AI model is in deployment in use. And it was really inspired by one of the items in console AI, which was on the detection of errors and how you interpret those errors in terms of the types of harms that they might introduce. And so the medical algorithmic audit is a framework that takes into a number of stages um, to think about uh, what is the intended use and the intended impact of an AI um, technology within clinical care, and then to take you through a number of proactive stages of mapping out okay, what are the types of errors that might occur? And um, if I were to proactively go out there and look for them, where would I look? What the data, what, what's the data that I would need to be able to do that? And then to close that cycle in terms of identifying and testing for potential errors, potential harms, and then making all mitigation steps within your clinical pathway and your clinical practice to try and um, avoid that uh, translating to patient harm. That's great. Yeah, I guess it effectively acts as a mechanism of accountability from developers right through to, to users, which is so, it's mm. so important to determine the safety of the AI doing these kinds of audits. Um, but what kind of skills do you think are needed for someone to do the audit? Um, and are the respective mm. stakeholders from developers through to clinical research teams equipped for this or, or is there more work to be done here? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's also a very timely one because we, we are now trying to implement audits um, 
locally at our hospital on um, some albums that are being piloted. And what we've learned so far is that you need a dedicated multidisciplinary team to be able to carry out this kind of prospective monitoring of AI safety. We're still in a phase of we don't know what the unknown unknowns are, and we're still trying to figure out what are the resources that we need, which stakeholders do we need buy-in from, how much dependency is there between the clinical teams and the operational teams and the uh, IT teams and the device manufacturer, um, because you cannot do AI safety monitoring with only one of those stakeholders. There's dependency between them, and you have to kind of map all these things up. And so... When you talk about workforce, um, it's, it's a multidisciplinary workforce that's required um, within a hospital. And I don't think, certainly in healthcare workers and clinicians, I don't think we are really being trained to be prepared for that. And what I hope um, in the coming years we'll, we'll have is educational programs um, that are integrated into our clinical training that gives us the ability to carry out or step up to these roles if required. But it is a very skilled uh, workforce that we need to be able to do this. Yeah, so I guess it's kind of requires some kind of overhaul of the medical education system. Um, yeah, and also you touched on an important point there, uh, talking about sort of multi-stakeholder involvement. Um, you know, when we mm -hmm. talk about the full life cycle of algorithms from the developer to the end user. Um, we actually recently published a pair of articles that you co-authored on the role and importance of patient reported outcomes in AI healthcare technologies. And these essentially emphasize the importance um, of a patient-centric approach to AI design. So really getting patients involved in the design phase. Um, why is it so important to incorporate patient voices into AI design? And what effect do you see this as having on mitigating biases? Yeah, so um, I can't take any credit for that work, but I was really privileged to be involved in it. That was really thought leadership that's led by from Lavera and uh, Melanie Calvert. Um, but what those articles illustrated is that there are a number of opportunities in the life cycle of AI development and testing that we can incorporate patient reported outcomes and bringing the patient voice. I think that's really important. And certainly one of the biggest things for me is how we do better at aligning the problem or the task that the AI algorithms are being designed to solve, how we align that to a priority that's relevant to patients. Um, and that may be um, something like aligning the predictions of the models to something that patients are actually reporting. So things like pain, for example, there's a really famous um, article by Ziad Obermeyer that looked at um, prediction of knee pain in patients with osteoarthritis. So it's, it's work like that, that I hope we will see more of. And then with, after aligning the task to um, things that are important to patients, to then eva also evaluate its ability to do that well, using patient outcomes as well. So you asked about, you know, what effect this might have on mitigating biases. I think that one of the things we have to bear in mind when considering patient outcomes is that we need that from all the relevant patients. So all the patients that fit within the spectrum of intended use population for these algorithms, 
And we have to recognize that alignment of the tasks to the patient priorities may look slightly different across different patient groups. And if we can build that into the design of our rhythms, then maybe that can contribute to reducing bias. That's really great. And it, and it brings us very nicely, actually, onto your work on tackling biases in health data sets. Now, we know there are a number of publicly available health data sets that can be used to train and validate AI algorithms, uh, for example, retinal fundus imaging data sets. But there are growing concerns that these data sets are not representative of global populations and in particular often exclude minority groups. What are the consequences of this and what can we do about it? Yeah, this is a big problem um, that we kind of stumbled upon. So I think it's becoming very widely recognized now that the data that is available to us is often not that representative of the full spectrum of patients that we are concerned with. And actually, it's a two-pronged problem. So one is that sometimes minority groups and underrepresented patients, they're not in the data set at all for a myriad of reasons. And then the second part of the problem is that sometimes they are, but the data sets aren't described accurately or in a complete or transparent way that you can actually assess who is represented in the data sets and who isn't. And both of these issues contribute to the overall problem of not having representative data sets. And this is a problem for AI because AI, and in fact, any data-driven technology relies on learning information that's held within the data. And if you're not present or visible or accurately represented within that data, then these algorithms are not going to learn about you or they're going to learn incorrect things about you and they're going to hold assumptions about you that maybe we don't want it to learn. And so we described this problem before as, as health data poverty, which we've explained as the inability for individuals to benefit from technologies, innovations, and insights that are based on data because of the scarcity of data that's representative of them. And the risk is that as we head towards a technology-driven future, that we exacerbate existing health inequalities by embedding them in these technologies. And you can imagine in the future, you know, we have a situation where those who are affluent, who are majority, who are well-represented, then get technologies and innovations that are built reflecting on them. And those that are underrepresented, disadvantaged, are left out. And we perpetuate the situation by then providing more technology, more modern innovations with that majority group again. And the divide just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this is a huge problem to tackle. And it's not something that, that we're going to be able to solve quickly, but one of the things that we're working on at the moment is um, something called the Standing Together program. So Standing Together is about building community-driven, consensus-driven practices for documenting and mitigating biases in health data sets and therefore in AI models. So the goal here is to come up with a set of best practices on how we describe and document data sets so that potential biases that are held within them are transparent, which means people who want to use that data can make informed decisions about whether it's suitable for their use case or not. And then the second part is about trying to acknowledge and test for these biases when we are specifically looking at those AI models that then go on to become medical devices. 
and making it very transparent that if an algorithm has been developed so on biased data that may transpire to bias within the performance of the technology and to also make that transparent for people who then want to use that technology. So Standing Together um, is a two-year project that we're currently halfway through. It's funded by the NHS AI Lab and the Health Foundation um, and NIHR. And in the next few months, we will be um, releasing a, a green paper or a sort of standards and draft um, that has been through a multi-stakeholder consensus study. There. So far, we've involved about just over 200 stakeholders and we'll be releasing that draft version in the next few months for public consultation. And we hope that we'll have a final version of the standard by the end of the year. Well, that's exciting. Such an important initiative. Thank you for, Thank for you. discussing. Um, so, you know, we've talked about uh, obviously the reporting guidelines and now these these new standards that are being introduced. Um, in what ways do you think that these will change practice? Um, and what do you think is the best way to incentivize different groups from, from clinicians to researchers to AI developers to actually adopt them? Um, yeah, so I mean, the impact that I hope it will have is in the first instance, I hope that all of the work that we've done around reporting guidelines, evidence standards will encourage more uh, clinical evaluation, more robust clinical evaluation of these algorithms. And even now we still see relatively few prospective interventional trials of AI, and I hope that we will see more in the near future. Um, what I hope that I guess in general, what I hope these standards will do is that they will, they will encourage more openness and transparency within the AI clinical scientific community. And I hope that by having that openness and transparency, it'll make it easier for everyone to appraise the evidence and to tease out the good algorithms from the bad algorithms. And so that it's easier to know which ones are safe and which ones are likely to be effective and that we can responsibly therefore deploy it into the healthcare system. The incentivization um, aspect of it is a really interesting thing to think about um, because it's something that we've thought about a lot. You know, it's all great to produce standards, but it's, there's no point in them unless people actually adopt them. And so we've always kind of taken a two-pronged approach to this, um, which you can call sort of sticks and carrots. So the sticks are that um, you can mandate them through uh, working with gatekeepers, um, and whether that be journal editors or medical device regulators or policy makers, you can engage with um, those institutions and bodies that gatekeep algorithms. And that's a sort of stick approach, but that's kind of uh, on one end of the spectrum, but on the other end of the spectrum, I think you need to do both is to take the community with you and build, um, build the belief that this is the right thing to do. So the way that we've always done that is through consulting really widely, developing best practice by consensus, doing lots of um, consultations and interviews with stakeholders. Um, and also engaging those who are leading in the field to lead by positive examples. So if those who are, you know, producing the really high impact papers and, and getting algorithms through regulatory approval are adopting 
um, these best practices, then the hope is that others will follow by example. And I think you have to do this both ways because um, the sick <laughs> approach is effective in the short term. But if you only take that approach, it kind of reduces these things to a tick box exercise. And I don't think it's sustainable, but the much more sustainable long term is to create um, natural incentives for people to be seeing these things as good things to be doing and wanting to aspire to them. And you have to accept also that um, you may not get it right the first time. And this, these standards have to be at a level that is both aspirational, but also achievable. Um, and so it could be an iterative process where we build these standards to become more and more robust and more and more aspirational um, for the long term. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's a fantastic response. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Shao. It was really great to learn about you and the work you're involved in and the important efforts you're making to integrate safety, equity and transparency into the digital health space. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.